welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, and I am an associate professor uh, at the home of Onco Farm, which is the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, uh, who's supporting this podcast. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am John Bazaar, um, oncology pharmacist, uh, professor, uh, all around decent guy, I like to think. There are a couple things we do here <clears throat> at, at Oncofarm. So we talk about uh, you know new updates, things that are new, new drug approvals in oncology pharmacy. Uh, we talk about some landmark clinical trial publications, uh, which we'll get back to in the coming weeks, as well as some of the foundational drugs we use in oncology pharmacy. We'll get back to that. There's just been so much going on these days in oncology pharmacy, and that's kind of the way it goes. So. Today, uh, we're going to look at a, a recent FDA drug update and then go into those drugs in that class. And those are the cyclin-dependent kinase 4 and 6 inhibitors. So on the 26th, which was two days ago, uh, February, bamacyclib uh, was approved along with an aromatase inhibitor as first-line treatment for postmenopausal women with hormone-positive, hormone-receptor-positive, although HER2-negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer. And bemacyclib was already approved in September of last year along with fulvestrant um, after progression on prior endocrine treatment. Um, so it's not a new drug, it's just moved up to a, a first-line uh, setting. So this is the um, was the third approved cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor. So I thought I'd spend some time and just talk about these three drugs. I'm not going to get into the, the efficacy of which one maybe is is better at treating breast cancer. I kind of think of them all as the same, and we don't have head-to-head -head studies um, that I'm aware of yet to tell us that one is better than the other. So we're gonna look at more their uh, individual drug characteristics um, uh, and go at it from, from that perspective, from a very drug-centric perspective as opposed to a disease-centric perspective. So how do these drugs work? Well, they inhibit cyclin dependent kinase, either four or six. So cyclin-dependent kinase is a kinase. It's an enzyme that depends on cyclin D1, which I think of as like a cofactor. So cyclin D1 binds to cyclin-dependent kinase. That allows cyclin-dependent kinase to phosphorylate uh, the retinoblastoma protein, RB, um, which is a tumor suppressor gene. And once retinoblastoma is phosphorylated, that allows the release of E2F, which is a transcription factor. Once E2F is released, that leads to cell cycle progression from G1 to the S phase. And we know that cancer cells, uh, as well as any cell that is rapidly dividing, is going to be progressing through the cell cycle more frequently. So um, these are cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors, and we are inhibiting the cycling through into the S phase. So causing G1 arrest is how these drugs work. We've got palbocyclib, which was first approved in 2015 in the US, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. Those last two both approved in 2017. They have generally the same indication, which is hormone positive, HER2 negative, uh, metastatic or advanced breast cancer. Uh, palbocyclib or palbo is approved in the first line setting along with an AI or the second line setting with fulvestrant. Ribocyclib is approved uh, in, the, in the first line setting with an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, the, the label doesn't specify which AI, but there is a co-pack of ribocyclib and letrozole where patients uh, basically dispensed um, a full month's worth of both drugs. Uh, Bemocyclib, there's a, a little difference here. It's approved first line with an AI. Now that's not different. Second line 
with fulvestrin. That's not different, but it's approved as monotherapy in patients who have already progressed after endocrine treatment and chemotherapy. So it's the only cyclin-dependent kinase, abemacyclib, that's approved as monotherapy. And we'll see that the dosing of monotherapy abemacyclib is different than with aromatase inhibitors. And that dose is 200 milligrams a day. Uh, sorry, 200 milligrams twice a day if it's for monotherapy. Um, now the dose is 150 milligrams twice daily if it's with an aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrin. Um, it is the only cyclin-dependent kinase that's approved twice a day abemacyclib. All the other ones are taken uh, once a day. So I thought that was an important difference uh, to point out um, is the twice daily as well as abemacyclib is the only one that is approved uh, for monotherapy. Um, because dose reductions are, are fairly common with really all of our oral antineoplastics these days, I think it's useful to consider what are the dosage forms we have to work with. So abemacyclib comes in 150 and 200 milligram tablets, since that's the starting dose, depending on the indication, as well as 150 milligram tablets. So if you have to dose reduce, you'll need a new prescription. Uh, Ribocyclib is 600 milligrams a day for 21 days, then seven days off, and it comes as 300 or sorry, 200 milligram tablets. So you got to take three tablets to equal to one dose, which is um, increases pill burden, but does allow for easier dose titration. Difference there, ribocyclob, 21 days on, 7 days off. Abemacyclob, continuous dosing every day, no breaks. Palbocyclob dosing, similar to ribocyclob, in that it's 125 milligrams daily for 21 days, 7 days off. And it comes as 125, 175 milligram capsules. So the big dosing differences are ribo and palbocyclob, 3 weeks on, 1 week off, whereas abemacyclob is taken continuously. <coughs> Pardon me. One thing I always consider, it's really the first thing that I think about whenever I'm counseling a patient, is how are they going to take this drug with regards to meals? Because it's a, a big uh, concern um, and kind of the most basic thing. If you can't do the simple things great, you'll never be able to do the hard things well at all. That's a, a John Wood-inspired uh, philosophy. So palbocyclib needs to be taken with food, and that's because there is a small subset of patients, and we don't from what I could find, know who these people are, but there's a small subset of patients who have very, very low absorption of palbocyclob that's not taken with food. And so taking with food increases the absorption in these patients and reduces the intersubject variability. So palbocyclob needs to be taken with food. Uh, ribocyclob, abemocyclob can be taken with or without food. So that's an advantage for those drugs. All three of these drugs are metabolized via 3A4. Um, palbocyclob also metabolized via uh, SALT2A1. And abemacyclib is a P-glycoprotein substrate, although the significance of that from a drug interaction standpoint hasn't been studied, unfortunately. Um, uh, Pavlocyclib is mostly eliminated in the feces. 75% of the drug is found in the feces as metabolites. Uh, same thing with abemacyclib, about 81% in the feces as metabolites in the end. Um, ribocyclib, like 17% of the unchanged drug is found in the feces, 12% unchanged in the urine. Um, so because all these drugs are metabolized via the liver, there are dose reductions for, for severe hepatic impairment for all three drugs. Small difference, ribocyclob has a dose reduction for moderate hepatic impairment. The other two don't require dose reduction for moderate hepatic impairment. So ribocyclob's uh, dosing is a little more dependent on that hepatic impairment, it seems, than, than palbo or abemacyclob. Uh, not surprisingly, since they're 3A4 inhibitors, 
3A4 substrates, 3A4 inhibitors constitute drug interactions. Um, this is a little interesting when you get into, um, when you look at some of the numbers and data from the PI. So itraconazole, potent 3A4 inhibitor, increases the exposure about twofold of palbociclib. Uh, ritonavir increases the exposure like 3.2-fold of ribocyclib. Um, erythromycin, uh, which the PI labels a moderate inhibitor, I think of it more as moderate to strong, about doubles the exposure of ribocyclib. Something interesting with the bemocyclib. So itraconazole, strong, two, strong 3A4 inhibitor, increases uh, the exposure of bemocyclib and its metabolites 2.2-fold. Ketoconazole, also a strong 304 inhibitor, is quote expected to increase the AUC 16-fold of MSI I don't know why it's expected to and why they don't know. I'm not smart enough to know what that word means in the PI expected. I also don't know why uh, it's a 16-fold increase in AUC with ketoconazole, but only a 2.2-fold increase with itraconazole. But that certainly is going to give me pause. Anybody taking a bemocyclib who needs to be on a 3 or 4 inhibitor. And then clarithromycin increases a bemocyclib exposure 1.7-fold. Uh, rifampin, as a potent 3 or 4 inducer, reduces the exposure um, significantly in all three of these drugs. Um, as far as effects on other drugs, we see some, some drug interactions with these cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors being um, weak to moderate 3A4 inhibitors. So palbociclib is a weak 3A4 inhibitor, which means it increases the exposure of midazolam by less than 100%. In this case, it's 60%. So I think of it, uh, simply put, you know, one milligram of midazolam is going to have the effect of about 1.6 milligrams of midazolam, someone taking palbociclib. Uh, ribocyclib is considered a moderate 3A4 inhibitor, although it increases the exposure of midazolam either 3.8 with single, 3.8 fold with single dosing, or 5.2 fold um, in a different study, which is kind of a strong inhibition. I mean, that's almost five times exposure of midazolam with, with ribocyclib. So it's certainly more of an interaction or a stronger 3A4 inhibitor than palbociclib or a bemocyclib, which is not a 3A4 inhibitor. Uh, interesting note, it's an OC2 inhibitor, which is a renal transport pump, uh, and because that increases the AUC of metformin uh, by, a, by a modest 37%. Probably not clinically relevant, uh, but interesting nonetheless to file away potentially. So, how is the drug taken? Do they have to take it with food? Yes for palbociclib. Are there 3A4 interactions? Of course. Is there QT prolongation? QT prolongation. That's the next drug interaction I always think about. Not for palbo, not for bimocyclib, but yes for ribocyclib. On average, QTC is prolonged about 23 milliseconds in all patients um, and more than 60 seconds in 1% in or fewer patients, which is a very long prolongation of the QT interval. There was one, although no recorded cases of torsades, in the registry study there was one death in a patient with grade two QT prolongation and hypokalemia. So of course, we're gonna to have to monitor our EKG. Um, in the case of ribocyclob, it's baseline, day 14, and then at the start of cycle two. And of course, uh, you should monitor their potassium, magnesium, and make sure that those are replaced. Um, the next thing I always think of for any oral anti-cancer agent is absorption pH dependent. And do we have to worry about drug interaction with PPIs and H2 receptor antagonists? And for all three of these, Thankfully, the answer is no. So as you go through and look at the drugs, some of the big differences, just to summarize, abemocyclib is the only one that's approved as monotherapy, albeit at a higher dose. Um, 
Palbo and ribocyclib uh, are three weeks on, one week off, whereas abemocyclib is continuous dosing. Palbocyclib requires administration with food, and ribocyclib has that QT prolongation as well as being a, a moderate, uh, borderline strong 3A4 inhibitor. So ribocyclib certainly seems like the drug that's more likely to have drug interactions uh, in an average postmenopausal woman with breast cancer who's going to be on a handful of other medications as well based on uh, her age and comorbidities. So when we look at the toxicity of these agents, um, they are, it's kind of what you would expect from mini chemotherapy, right? It's, they're, they're cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. They're going to be um, uh, more focused on drugs that are rapidly growing. So similar to what you see in chemotherapy. So for that reason, you're going to see neutropenia as one of the big toxicities. And uh, when I'm looking at, at side effects of drugs and trying to get a, kind of a 10,000 foot overview before I really get into the details and the depths, which is you know what I'm trying to do on the pod, um, I look at section five of the package. That's the warnings, precautions. Those are the side effects, not just that are common, but are serious or need extra attention. So we're going to go through those one by one. So for palbocyclib, there are two. And remember, Palbo was the first one of these drugs approved from a class standpoint. Neutropenia and embrofetal toxicity. Now, these are postmenopause women, so I don't think we have to worry about the embrofetal toxicity on them. But if they have a daughter, granddaughter around, uh, safe storage of the medication uh, is, is a prudent counseling point, as same as you would with, uh, with lenalidomide in, in a lady with, with myeloma. Um, there is not a, a warning for uh, hepatobiliary toxicity, although we'll see that there are for both ribo and abemocyclib. And if you look at the, the LFT abnormality rate um, for palbo, it's on par with the other one. So you probably should still have the same kind of LFT monitoring philosophy you would for the others. Uh, the, first, the first warning for ribocyclob is the QT prolongation, and we mentioned the EKG monitoring already. Um, there are LFT monitoring required uh, for hepatobiliary toxicity, so that's every two weeks for two cycles, and then every month for the next four cycles. Neutropenia and embrofetal toxicity also listed at warning and precautions. Uh, abemocyclob, here's a new one. Diarrhea, number one. Nine, about 90% of patients had diarrhea, and 13% of those is grade three, so you know, uh, at least one in 10 women taking a bimacyclob had to be admitted to the hospital for, for dehydration. It's kind of a grade three toxicity. And the PI says that patients should begin taking something like loperamide at the first sign of a loose stool. So certainly an important counseling point to offer patients. Uh, neutropenia is listed, although the incidence of neutropenia seems to be less with a bimacyclob than the others. Now we're comparing an apple to an orange to a pear because these were not compared head to head but it does seem to cause less neutropenia. Maybe that's why you can get away with taking it continuously, whereas ribo and pabocyclob need three weeks on, one week off. There's a warning for hepatotoxicity, and these are not box warnings. These are just regular warnings and precautions. So LFTs every two weeks for two months and then monthly for two months. Uh, another interesting thing about abemocyclob, 5% of the patients had VTE compared to 0.9% in the placebo plus AI group. So there does seem to be a higher risk of VTE with abemocyclob. Uh, now, if we think of this as, as mini chemotherapy, you would expect to see some, some stomatitis or mucositis. You did see that in a higher incidence in all three of these drugs compared to the placebo group or the comparator, as well as alopecia. 16% for bimacyclib, 33% for ribocyclib, 25% for pavocyclib. If you average those out, you're, gonna, you're talking one in five women on a CDK inhibitor are going to have some degree 
of hair loss. Clinically, from what I've seen, it's not like you would expect from somebody taking AC for breast cancer, uh, but you can see a little bit of alopecia. Uh, and as I mentioned, I'm not gonna talk into the efficacy. I went into the, their approvals uh, and where they're approved. Um, so these drugs certainly have pretty big benefits. Uh, they're approved first line for women with hormone positive breast cancer, that's HER2 negative. Um, they're oral agents, so a big role for oncology pharmacists in um, managing their use of the medications and taking it, uh, like for pavlocyclib, with food, uh, educating patients on the three days on, uh, or three weeks on, one week off, and making sure that they have their medication for the start of the next cycle. And then importantly, screening for drug interactions, helping to make sure that we have QT monitoring plans in place as well as electrolytes for ribocyclib, uh, and then LFT monitoring, probably for all three of these drugs. And I didn't get into the big one that we would do, which is gonna be the CBC monitoring, as well as the dose reductions and titration for um, for neutropenia and potentially thrombocytopenia, but you know what? We're pretty good at that because we do that a lot with lots of other drugs. Uh, so I didn't get uh, into that detail. Um, the nice thing is if you're unsure what to do if somebody has neutropenia with these drugs or they have some degree of hepatic dysfunction or some other side effect, um, as is the case with most newer drugs these days, especially oral drugs for cancer, um, section two of the package insert is gonna have all the dose reductions um, for toxicity. So there's a nice table uh, and that's extrapolated um, and copied into a lot of the drug information databases. So uh, that's a, a quick trip through our CDK inhibitors. Uh, we've got three now. Uh, we very, mel very may well see more. I don't know of any off the top of my head uh, in the pipeline. Uh, hopefully, uh, we would get a nice intergroup study comparing some of these together like we have for some of the AIs, uh, but I am not holding my breath that we will know which one of these is going to be better, if one is better, uh, anytime soon. But those are the differences in administration, uh, toxicity, and drug interaction. So, thank you for listening, and uh, I will see you on a little further down the road. Thank you.